0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Before I even saw the inmates in the air, I knew something was wrong. And it was just kind of in the air. I could feel it. I just knew something was wrong. The second thing I was outstanding about who clapped to me was the fact of the way he handled riots and disturbances out there. You have to move fast, and he did. And, uh, the inmates were dissatisfied. I think the administration really didn't see it coming, and it just uh, it just ignited. It got interesting that night. And I used to take my tear gas gun and go down and sit my cage down there and uh, keep peace, you know. <laughs> There was enough up there that knew that I maintained
2: discipline
1: and that no rioting would be permitted
2: or somebody was going to be killed. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Stool Pigeon Saturday, Disturbing Justice Edition. This is Anthony. I'm talking to Sky.
0: What's up?
2: Hey, how's Texas?
0: <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, we are getting, while Idaho and the rest of the West are getting suffocated by smoke... Uh, Texas is about to get blasted by a hurricane. Um, luckily in Dallas, I'm about too far north to be really affected by it. I think we're supposed to get some rain, but um, I think Houston, I think, is being evacuated. So, um, Wow. Yeah, so things are happening everywhere, um, but I hope everyone back home is safe and healthy and all that smoke and smog, and as someone who has weak lungs, I'm, I understand the plight of having such bad air.
2: It was clear this morning. It was it was a nice, beautiful day this morning. But I imagine all that smoke is just going to refill the uh, mm-hmm. the valley here, and we'll be enjoying that for the the week oh, to come. So, man. Oh I'm glad you're out of the range of that hurricane. I've been kind of watching that yeah. on the news, and Thanks. wow, I really hope everybody yeah oh, makes it out okay on that. I Jeez. think
0: it's I think it's I from what I've briefly heard on what little news I've been watching, they are somewhat comparing the strength of this to katrina so um, oh, this is no. a pretty this is a pretty serious i think i saw a news clip that called it potentially unsurvivable so yeah oh, this my is gosh, it's, it's a bit of a serious storm so i'm i'm thankful wow. that i'm out of it as well but i think the gulf coast part of the state is going to be in a little bit of trouble
2: Oh wow! Well, so I'll I hope everyone, st- yeah,
0: stays safe and and evacuated, and the damage of property and and um, of your homes are it's not too extensive. Um, but anyway, oh, yeah. Ugh. Oh, well, let's uh, let's talk about something else. Let's let's finish our our good friend Warden Snook, who's now yeah. going to Atlanta.
2: Going to Atlanta, John Snook Part 2, and my sources today are, of course, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, which I use extensively, the Warren's Biennial Reports from 1909 to 1917 and 1924, I kind of referenced those a little bit again, Digital Library of Georgia, Georgia Historic Newspapers, Findagrave.com articles on members of the Snook family, Author Kimberly Jensen's book, Oregon's Doctor to the World, Esther Paul Lovejoy and a Life in Activism, which mentions Charlotte Snook's family history some more. Centennial History of Lemhi County, Idaho, published in 1992, available on archives.org. A 1930 study titled Prohibition Enforcement, Its Effects on Courts and Prisons by the Association Against the Prohibition Amendment. So against it, which was a pretty interesting article to read. Uh, it was from 1930 a wikipedia article on mabel walker willembrandt george remus and marcus garvey as well as roy gardner and a casetext.com file on sartain versus the united states Prisons and the American Conscious A History of U.S. Federal Corrections by Paul W. Keeve, a uh, fantastic book, a great resource on Snook. Uh, Marcus Garvey, Life and Lessons, Centennial Companion to the Marcus Garvey and Universal Negro Improvement Association Papers, a uh, great book that I reference later. The Congressional Record of Congress from 1931, and Behind Gray Walls by our very own Patrick Murphy. So. To recap from part one of John Snook, he began his career as a deputy U.S. Marshal in Alaska during the Yukon Gold Rush, a position he received from his uncle, James Shoup, who was the U.S. Marshal of Alaska, and the brother of Idaho's first state governor, George Shoup. After working in Alaska for seven eventful years, with highlights including getting shot in the left hand by an escapee, which left his little pinky finger uh, limp the rest of his life, and marrying Charlotte, the sister of a wealthy young businessman who was brutally killed on Christmas Day. He then returned to Idaho to ranch and salmon, only to get involved in politics and become a state legislator. And from there, he was appointed warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary in 1909, where he fought to find work for idle prisoners and personally chased down escapees and resigned in the end of 1916 after punching the private secretary of M- governor Moses Alexander in the state Capitol building for the publication of several salacious stories questioning Snook's honor in the newspaper, the Capitol news. And then Snook returned to salmon and returned to the legislature, only to be reappointed as warden in 1924 when then warden Cuddy became ill and he had to step down. And so Snook became warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary again in 1924. Then we left off as Snook was extending the prison industry system with the new t-shirt factory that was installed in the prison. And under Snook, the $20,000 loan that was used to build the shirt factory was paid off with a surplus between $4,000 and $5,000 by January 7th, 1925, just days before he resigned and became the warden of the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. One thing I didn't mention last week was that one of his last duties in 1924 was just like one of his first duties when he arrived in 1909, and that was to oversee the hanging of a prisoner named Noah Arnold on December 19th, 1924, and Noah had a long rap sheet admitting to several murders throughout his career, and the last of which occurred during a robbery in Hope, Idaho, during the summer of 1923. And we will get into his case and the horrifying details of his hanging in a future episode. So let's get to the history of the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. So, he began his duty on January 15, 1925. Now, to go back, we discussed how lawful good John Snook was. He always strived to be completely honest and by the book in every operation he undertook. If he read a bill that was vague in language, even if it was by his, his Republican partners in a legislature, he would refuse to vote for it until they specified everything and, and made sure every tax dollar was paid to the last penny, you know, and stretched as far as it could go. You know, his reputation preceded him. The federal government needed someone of his ilk to correct and redirect their efforts within the federal penitentiary system. As you'll hear from his sons in this oral history clip, after his death, Warden Snook had one of the best fiscal records of any state warden.
1: Well then, how did uh, Grandpa from from, uh, the Idaho State Penitentiary, how did he get to become warden of the Federal Penitentiary of the East? Because he had the best record of all state wardens. And and so what? Uh, and so what they, was the background of that? How did so they asked him to come down to Atlanta. You remember you know, much him. higher wage. When you say he had the best record in what in, in managing the budget, yeah, managing the the prison, he didn't have
2: his <laughs> along with,
1: did get along with the prisoners. I think yeah. there and in Atlanta had a good report.
2: In 1891, an act called the Three Prisons Act was passed, creating the federal prison system that led to the creation of federal institutions in the West at McNeil Island in Washington, in the Midwest at Leavenworth, Kansas, and in the East in Atlanta, Georgia. And prior to this act, federal prisoners were held in state penitentiaries, but those quickly filled up. The Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia, opened in 1902 after completion by prisoners who both quarried the stone and built the institution, just like here in Idaho. In 1903, the prisoners were sent outside to build the massive concrete wall that surrounded the institution, and it's still an active prison today. It's known as the Big A to prisoners. If you look at a photo of it, you'll see this like classical cathedral look to it that's meant to make arriving prisoners feel Tiny, meager, you know, super small. And now, for those of you who don't know, the difference between a crime that lands you in a state penitentiary versus a federal penitentiary depends on the crime itself and where it's committed. So federal crimes included crimes committed on federal property, such as breaking in a post office and stealing packages, counterfeiting, tax evasion, or crimes that cross state lines, such as kidnapping, sex trafficking, or drug trafficking. Individuals are charged in a federal court with prosecutorial aid by federal agencies like the FBI or the Drug Enforcement Agency. State crimes are what we deal with in our normal podcast behind gray walls like murder, grand larceny, and forgery. Crimes distinguished by each state with their corresponding punishments. By 1916, there are five federal penitentiaries in the United States. After Prohibition was enacted in 1920, the population of the federal penitentiary prisoners began to skyrocket. According to a 1930 report titled Prohibition Enforcement, Its Effects on Courts and Prisons, the year 1920 saw over 5,000 Prohibition cases, or roughly 15% of all federal cases relating to Prohibition, and by 1928, there were over 58,000 cases, Roughly 66%, meaning two-thirds of all federal court cases were related to prohibition by 1928. Federal penitentiaries were being filled to the brim, and many federal prisoners had to be housed in local jails. It got so out of hand that in 1929, the superintendent of federal prisoners named Sanford Bates stated, quote, the United States Prison Bureau today does not know how many federal prisoners there are in, in county jails. An effort is being made to find out. But with the present personnel, there is no prospect of their being able to use the knowledge, even if obtained. So they had so many prisoners, they didn't even know how many were being housed where. It was just crazy.
0: It's such a weird law that was just basically passed by a religious majority and I mean if you think about how many people you know today who drink it's the majority of people and how many of us would have a hard time giving that up if it suddenly became illegal I mean mm-hmm. you know it I have a lot of opinions on prohibition it's fine It was <laughs> a dumb law
2: yeah it brought about organized crime and gangs because of you know the black market value of liquor right
0: well and i mean just like everything else when you make it illegal it doesn't make it go away it just makes it more dangerous and creates a whole new dangerous system around the country so it just uh, it's fine this
2: whole underground network sprung up and you know we've talked about prohibition in a couple episodes previously It was lucrative. People Mm -hmm. could make millions with bootleg liquor. Yeah. And with all the money coming in, it's not long until overworked and underfunded authorities begin to get involved into this racket. They accept bribes to look the other way. This dream of these teetotalers and prohibitionists, it was backfiring. Crime was supposed to go down. Husbands were supposed to become moral. Society as a whole was supposed to improve without the menace of intoxicating liquors. In 1923, there were over 81,000 federal and state prisoners, but by 1927, the number increased to over 96,000. So this underbelly began to show its face, and bribes began to infiltrate within the prison systems because now, you know, the vast majority of these criminals, they're they are finally getting busted. They're on the inside. They still have all this money, and, and what are they going to do with it? So to combat this... The Bureau of Investigation, later the uh, FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, they began sending in these undercover agents into prisons to to investigate the prisons themselves and the authorities within the prisons. And it was led by the uh, highest-ranking woman in the federal government at the time, the most influential woman in America in the 1920s. Her name was Mabel Walker Willebrand, nicknamed the First Lady of Law. And she served as the U.S. Assistant Attorney General from 1921 until 1929. And she handled cases concerning the Bureau of Prisons as well as prohibition and federal taxation. And referring to her tough enforcement of prohibition laws and the hounding and firing of any attorney who didn't uphold them, she received other nicknames including Deborah of the Dries," Mrs. Firebrand, and Prohibition Portia. And she was, (laughs) I, I love it. Uh, She was pivotal in taking down some of the biggest bootlegger rings like the big four of Savannah who were busted in August 1923 and considered one of the largest bootlegging syndicates in the country with a flotilla of boats and storehouses that supplied the south and east coast. And they transferred liquor to these little concrete bunkers along the swamps of Georgia and Florida and then traveled out to the ocean and traveled up the coast with all these booze. Uh, The four ringleaders in the massive organization were brought down by a failure to pay income tax of in excess of a million (laughs) dollars. Another bootlegger that she helped bring down was Cincinnati's king of bootleggers, George Remus. I've actually, I've loved George Remus' story for a long time. I came across his name and John Snooks in the book The Ghosts of Eden Park by Karen Abbott that I highly recommend to anyone wanting any detailed look into the bootleg kingpin's web of crime and his eventual incarceration under warden john snook super fascinating i remember reading about his incarceration in atlanta under snook and just like losing it like wait isn't that Ido's john snook and, and just feel like wait i gotta check this out and that really spurred me on it was kind of a big motivation for me to want to do these episodes in the first place so george remus is like the stuff of legends he inspired characters in The Great Gatsby and the HBO show Boardwalk Empire and several books that catalog his life and crimes. He was well-educated. He was a certified pharmacist in his early 20s and decided at the age of 24 to become a lawyer. He passed the bar in 1904 and focused on criminal defense, making a name for himself in 1914 with the defense of transitory insanity, which we call now Temporary Insanity. After the 18th Amendment passed and Prohibition began on January 17, 1920, George Remus realized that there was a loophole with Prohibition. You could still sell liquor for medical purposes. Citizens could actually obtain a certificate from their doctor certified by the Treasury Department for liquor, which was sold at this crazy exorbitant cost. It was like $80 for like a little bottle of whiskey. Remus, both a lawyer and a certified pharmacist, realized that he could make big money and hide behind the guise of legal medical whiskey. He bought up distilleries that manufactured government-bonded whiskey, purchased trucks, and developed a transportation company to move the legal liquor around the country. And after establishing a solid, above-board business and using his fame and friendship with lawmakers and elites to grow his business, he actually started his little scheme his truck drivers transporting the legal medical whiskey were run off the road and hijacked by criminals who happened to also be employees of his. They would steal the whiskey from the truck and sell it, keeping the underground black market afloat with the best and safest whiskey available. His gang was robbing his own shipments of legal whiskey. While this is happening, he's hobnobbing with everybody who's anybody having these lavish 1920s parties with politicians and celebrities he's beloved by everybody and he was finally taken down by undercover bureau of investigation agents who investigated him they infiltrated his inner circle they uh bugged his hotel rooms He was finally charged with 3,000 counts of violation of the Volstead Act and sentenced to two years at Atlanta Federal Penitentiary in 1922. But he didn't enter the prison for two years until the spring of 1924. Now, I highly recommend The Ghost of Eden Park by Karen Abbott for anyone interested in his stories. And if you don't want to be spoiled about the climax of the book, Please skip ahead for like the next two minutes because this is a wild ride. So while incarcerated, George was speaking to an agent named Franklin Dodge, and he tried to garner a deal for leniency in the prison if he told this agent Dodge which federal agents he had bribed while he was running his racket. George started to uh, divulge his secrets, but realized that the safest bet was to have his wife, Imogene, flirt with Dodge. This ended up being a horrible idea because it quickly resulted in an affair between his wife and this agent. And Dodge convinced Imogene to use the power of attorney to strip George of his money, divorce George, and to marry him, the agent. So they spent, they hid, and invested millions of dollars of George's money, except for a single payment of $100 to George's commissary book at the Atlanta Penitentiary. And just days before George's release from the prison in August 1925, she filed for a divorce. George lost everything. He was actually taken to Ohio to serve another two-year sentence. And upon his release from there, he had to finalize his divorce. And on his way, To court on October 6th, 1927, to finalize it, George spotted the cab holding his wife and told the cabbie to chase the vehicle. They sped through Cincinnati's Eden Park and forced the other cab off the road. And George jumped out of the car, grabbed Imogene, and shot her in the abdomen. She died from this wound. And he was brought up for trial where he defended himself. He was a lawyer. And guess what defense he used? transitory insanity which it worked the jury took 19 minutes to acquit him so he was released he was never charged for her murder he spent seven months in the asylum in ohio before being returned to a society to start a new life so crazy story it's so fascinating i yeah highly recommend that book Now, it's hard to imagine how alluring a little bribery and added favors were for authorities who were frankly not paid enough to defend a law that many of them didn't even believe in or in some cases follow. Police officers were going up against well-armed gangs led by men like Charles Lucky Luciano, Vito Genovese, and Al Capone. If one bootlegger went down, another would pop up in their place. And when these criminals got busted, they still had mountains of wealth to sway the game in their direction. So, Warden Snook—he's stubbornly honest, he's steadfast in upholding the law—and had an uphill battle when he got a call asking him to replace Warden Albert E. Sartain at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Here's what happened with a former warden: Albert Sartain was appointed warden in Atlanta in 1923—a bump up from his position as a sheriff in Ohio. Sartain, like Snook, was active in local Republican politics. He was appointed by Willebrand's boss, Attorney General Harry Dowtree. The population of the penitentiary was nearly double the intended capacity, making the enforcement of the silence system that had ruled the prison for over 20 years impossible. Sartain oversaw the construction of a new water pumping facility and a power plant to maintain the prisoners. As the warden, he was dealing with some of the biggest bootleggers of the time, like George Remus. Remus attempted to sway the new warden and his administration with money to receive favors like having Imogene visit his private cell regularly to clean the cell and make his meals.
0: Mm-hmm. I bet, I bet that's what she's doing in there.
2: If you read the book, actually, that he was a little too depressed most of the time to, yeah, <laughs> have a, a different sort of visit. But, uh, yeah, uh, they, they're, I mean, this is fairly minor, I'm going to say compared to what uh, happened next so more and more bootleggers flooded in and Sartain was willing to make life comfortable for them at a price this came to an end when seven bootleggers entered the prison along with a money advance consisting of fifteen hundred dollars from each so Sartain received ten thousand five hundred dollars in all any guesses how much that is today
0: I'm going to say that is five hundred thousand dollars
2: Oh, man, $198,581. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were paying for special treatment, including catered meals, specialized living quarters, and even special weekend trips outside the prison to enjoy the nightlife that Atlanta had to offer. (laughs) They were getting checked into hotels and throwing these lavish parties right in Atlanta. And Sartain even took them out on a personal hunting trip with him at one point, which is just crazy. His personal chauffeur was one of the members of the infamous Savannah Rum Ring that I told you about in Florida. And Willembrandt had actually sent in agents to investigate and uncovered via the chauffeur this whole scheme. And Sartain ended up resigning less than a year into his position and was soon brought up on charges of conspiracy and bribery. It was discovered that most of the prison administration were taking bribes from many of these prohibition inmates. Albert Sartain and his deputy warden, Lawrence Reel, were both charged in the operation. Even the prison chaplain, Father Thomas C. Hayden, was alleged to be a go-between in these bribes. The trial began on February 9, 1925, and the chaplain peached on both Warden Sartain and Deputy Warden Lawrence Real, avoiding his own conviction. Several federal prisoners also served as witnesses against the prison administrators, including George Remus, sealing both of their fates. The verdict was rendered on February twentieth, 1925, and Albert Sartain, actually entered the penitentiary as number 24207 two years later on February 28th, 1927, sentenced to a year and a half in the institution for the crime of conspiracy to accept and receive a bribe. And his mug shots and fingerprints were taken, and he was issued a cell in his own former prison where Warden Snook gave him the job as a meat packer. Sartain did his time and was granted a parole just under a year later on February 3rd, 1928. Now, In 1925, after the conviction, the prisoners that took the stand were moved for their own safety for breaking the convict code and sent to Clark County Jail in Athens, Georgia, where they were given more liberties than the prisoners at the federal penitentiary. Warren Snook did not like that they were given preferential treatment for their bribery and their own protection, and he actually contacted the attorney general and requested that they return to the penitentiary. Remus apparently bet another bootlegger named Har $100 that they wouldn't have to go back to the penitentiary. But by mid-June 1925, Remus was out $100 as they returned to the prison under the new warden. They were not going to get any special treatment under Warden (laughs) Snook. So, as we've mentioned in in Idaho, Warden Snook's ability to save and raise money for an institution was brought up in a hearing. I mean, he was well known for this. And... Assistant Attorney General Willembrandt brought it up on February 17, 1925. She discussed the population increase at the federal prison from 2,500 inmates in 1924 to over 3,000 in 1925. She said, quote, "...in the last four months, that increase has been at a greatly accelerated rate. In the last two months, the prisoners have been coming in in carload lots in great numbers." That is one reason for the need for an increase in the maintenance appropriation. Later, she said, quote, "...the further reason that we now come before you and ask for this definite increase in appropriation is that we have got the prison reorganized. It is in the hands of an experienced prison man, a man who has been warden of an institution for years past and has for 12 years the record of running his institution on an economical basis." He took over this work, you see, within the last 30 days. He took over with the appropriation almost gone. It was up to Warden Snook to get the prison into working order with over 3,000 prisoners, very little for them to do. And the appropriation was for farm animals and land. And and Willembrand discussed the need for improved conditions, particularly in the prison plumbing, which was going downhill quickly. Now, the chairman asked how she knew Snook and... How she knew he wouldn't be like just like Warden Sartain. And she responded that Snook, quote, has about nineteen years practical experience. He has been a member of the Idaho legislature, during which time he served on the appropriation committee. Asked if that made him qualified to run a prison, she responded, quote, I think it makes him look at the dollars and cents. His record in running the Idaho State Penitentiary was one of economy. As an example of that, I would like to call the committee's attention to the fact that he went before the committee of the Idaho legislator and asked for a loan of $20,000 to establish an industry, promising that in two years he would pay it back. And he had it paid back in less than a year. There are many such examples of his efficiency. Then the chairman asked if she had prosecuted the previous warden and if she was sure about Warden Stuck, and she said, quote, I would gamble my personal reputation on his being a high-class prison official. I did not know him personally until he was appointed, but every person who was considered for this position was, under my personal direction, carefully investigated that is, investigated by undercover examination into their past experience and qualifications, as to the way in which they had managed businesses. And this man stood head and shoulders above all these applicants who could be obtained. Willebrandt had to explain repeatedly that the appropriation request was to reestablish high-producing farmland that would feed all the prisoners at the institution so they wouldn't have to buy food for the prisoners. In the long run, making the daily cost of the housing prisoners less and saving the government and taxpayers money. She broke it down saying, quote, The daily per capita cost has been 26 cents. There are 2,965 prisoners to be provided for, with two carloads coming in. This makes $770 cost of maintenance per day. Per month, the figure is $22,127. There are five months yet to go, and it will cost the present warden $115,000 to maintain just the number of prisoners he took over. But I want to keep you reminded that more are coming in every day. There only remains $65,869 for him to use leaving an absolutely necessary expenditure of $49,631 to maintain Atlanta without any further increase in population. So Warren Snook is in command of a sinking ship with bad plumbing and little for the men of the institution to do. This is his like bread and butter. He's ready. An Associated Press article appeared in the Banner Herald in Athens, Georgia on January 23rd, 1925 with the line... Idle will work at Atlanta prison under a new regime. The write-up followed, quote, As the first step in a program for improving conditions at Atlanta federal prison, John Snook is prepared to establish a new industry for employment of idle prisoners and to seek better housing conditions in the overcrowded prison. His second task was to eliminate all drugs, wipe out the dope ring at the prison. In an interview on January 29th, he stated, quote, Changes in the workings of the prison will come gradually naturally no one can hope to make over a system in a week's time but i do believe that if the inmates are put to real productive work drug smuggling escapes and other things a prison head fears will be eliminated to a marked degree one such smuggling attempt actually came just a little time after 1925 when snook discovered a box of morphine baked into a cake that was sent to a prisoner and so he said, you know what? If this is going to the case, the only way to prevent more smuggling is to stop allowing gifts inside the prison. And he actually started to force families and visitors to buy their loved ones items from the prison commissary instead. So that kind of Yeah, uh,
0: I mean this is uh this is a completely different regime than oh, yeah. these I mean even, you know, the the prisoners who aren't bribing and aren't involved in sort of that that corruption you know to have this guy from Idaho come in and he is just (laughs) I mean he's almost as military as I've ever seen and you know we all know military people who are very by the book and very strict and very like Uh one person sort of ruins it for everyone and I feel like he's like the most of that that i've ever seen and so if i were in this prison i would be so upset
2: yeah i mean almost immediately like overnight in 1925 atlanta federal penitentiary was considered like the hardest prison after he became warden and it's it's because of this he saw how much crime was going on in the country he literally said this he said if this keeps up we'll have to build new penitentiaries or just wall up the few law observers left like oh gosh this is what we need we need somebody who's strict and that's what he was going to do right so
0: i wonder i mean i i wonder how inmates at the idaho state penitentiary like, because they would have been used to a system like this, so like it wouldn't have come as such a shock to them. I find it interesting that that they didn't complain that much, other than the you know the one time that they sort of tried to escape, but it was sort of half-hearted and they, you know, kind of gave up really quickly. Yeah. But they, there wasn't complaints really at all from them which I yeah. find really interesting because I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but I'm assuming that the inmates in Atlanta are not happy about this, these changes.
2: He was strict and by the book, but that gave prisoners an idea that like, okay, he's going to treat me fairly, you know, mm-hmm. and that yeah. was it. And, and throughout his whole life and his whole career, it seems like that was the case. He treated everybody equally. He didn't even matter. Mm. So he's got all this pressure going on and then at the at right right here at the beginning on July 15, 1925 he actually has another son quentin charlotte gives birth to another son in the warden's residence and john calls quentin a, a true georgia cracker so i mean <laughs> he's got all this pressure of of reorganizing this institution, and now he's got a little baby at home.
0: And what's the age difference between his oldest and Quinton?
2: His oldest was born in 1904. So, it's like 21 years. Yeah, that's a a
0: full adult difference. Yeah.
2: Uh Good for for Charlotte, is what
0: I have to say.
1: They had had a lot of trouble in the Atlanta Penitentiary, and they made a undercover investigation of the wardens in the United States, the FBI, and <coughs> the warden had been, the latter had been indicted, and an agent of the FBI was in charge at the time, and the Attorney General of the United States, and, because while Cal Coolidge was president, Attorney General Sergeant called me up and asked me if I would come to Washington for, for consultation with Reference to taking over the wardenship of Atlanta, and uh, I did, and, and I was appointed there on the 15th. I think it was the 15th of January of 25 as warden of Atlanta. On the 15th of July of 1925, the uh, my son Quentin was born in the Wardens Residence, uh, Atlanta. Oh, for sake!
0: Uh... This season of Behind Gray Walls: Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities.
2: We would like to thank them for their generous support. So like Idaho's prison newspaper, The Wall, City, Bulletin, and the Clock, the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary had a prison newspaper that began in 1912 called Good Words. And it was written, printed, produced by the prisoners. And when Snook arrived, the ex-governor of Indiana named W.T. McCray, who was serving a sentence for the crime of misuse of the mails, actually edited the newspaper and wrote an article about the new warden, talking about his work in the Idaho legislature as warden and as deputy marshal in Alaska. And my favorite line from this, I could only find a reproduction of this article in the Jackson Herald from February 26, 1925. And it stated, uh, quote, though a disciplinarian, he declines being headlined as a two-gun warden. In fact, he said, a prison is a melting pot. After parents, society, and the courts have finished with a man, he is sent to us to salvage the good in him if we can. The day of brutality in prisons is over. As for myself, I believe in the old saying, you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar.
0: That's what's so exceptional about him is that he does command this respect and he does really crack down, but he doesn't do it in a violent way. Like it's it's all. Just yeah, he doesn't like,
2: result to violence if he has. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like this is he does it almost like I don't, like it's almost like he studied like behavioral science and he like understands what gets people to do what they ha- need to do. I think it's very hard to find people who are able to keep order and who aren't in some way violent whether it's physically or or otherwise and so i think yeah it's uh, that's very i mean just like we've been talking about i think a very unique quality of his
2: he dealt with some of the worst of the worst in alaska so he can deal with anybody like Mm -hmm. anywhere else you know particularly because now he doesn't have to go chase them down as as criminals Mm -hmm. he just has to hold them in place and then provide them opportunities to better themselves and that was his whole motivation but, you know, this honey treatment, it's not always effective. One man that Snook had to deal with was this guy named Roy Gardner, and Roy was a lifelong criminal. He worked as a gun runner during the Mexican Revolution until he was captured and sentenced to death by firing squad in 1909, only to escape from the jail with his life and return to the United States. In uh, 1920, he actually robbed a U.S. mail truck containing cash and securities totaling nearly $87,000 near San Diego, California. But he was caught just a couple days later actually burying the loot. Authorities found $67,000 of these securities buried. And he was sentenced to McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary to 25 years. On June 7, 1920, he was being transported to McNeil Island And was near Portland, Oregon. He asked to wash his hands in this basin in the corner of the room of this train car. And the guard followed right behind him. And Roy actually turned around. He spun around really quickly holding a revolver that had been sewed into his clothing. Both officers froze and their hands up in the air. And Roy actually disarmed them. He had another prisoner grab their handcuffs and handcuffed them together. They searched the officers, pulled keys out of them, unclasped the heavy organ boots that were strapped to their ankles, all these prisoners in this car. And Roy actually showed the officers where his gun had been hiding. He showed where it had been stitched and placed. He told them to be quiet for 20 minutes. He stole $200 from their pockets and then walked through the train cars, kind of mingling with fellow passengers as he walked to the back and jumped out of the back of it as it was arriving at the East Portland Depot And he was on the run. He went up to Canada, and he returned in 1921 and continued this whole trail of robberies kind of through the western half of the country, just following train cars. A $5,000 reward was put on his head, and he was actually spotted after committing a robbery on a train in California that was heading up towards Washington, and officers actually began closing in on him when he was spotted at a cafe in Washington. He was recaptured in Castle Rock, Washington in June 1921. He was like America's most wanted criminal here. And he was convicted to a second term of 25 years. While at the penitentiary, about six weeks, he escaped again. So he had actually convinced these two other prisoners that he had paid off the tower guards and that he had cut a hole in the fence. And they were out during their wreck time playing baseball, and somebody hit a fly ball. And while that was happening, he yelled, now! Now! And the three prisoners, Roy Gardner and his two companions, ran towards the fence, and they actually made it out, and the officer spotted them and began shooting. Gardner was shot in the leg, but he kept running to his freedom, but the other two were stopped with bullets, Uh, one that just injured the man and the other who was actually killed. Gardner had, had lied to him basically to use them as target practice so that he could make his escape, which he did. He made it off of the island. Everybody was out for this man. Uh, he was actually recaptured later that fall in 1921 after a series of robberies in Arizona and given 25-year sentence and sent to Levensworth, Kansas. And there he said, ah, oh, this place will never hold me. He was given the nickname the King of Escape Artists and later sent to Atlanta Federal Prison in 1925, which was considered the toughest prison in the country, as I said. And over the next two years, he attempted to escape under Stuck several times. First, though, he asked for an operation on his skull because apparently he had this massive head injury. I guess a, like a cave fell in on him and it kind of split his personality, which we've kind of discussed. Um, you talked about that in a previous episode about head injuries leading to kind of erratic criminal behavior. So Warden Snook agreed to have this operation on his skull to relieve the pressure on his brain. But this didn't really work because uh, in 1926, he attempted to escape by tunneling under the wall and also by sawing through the bars in the shoe factory. In 1927, he and another prisoner got a hold of some small pearl-handled pistols that were smuggled into the penitentiary. And while all the other prisoners were at wreck time, he and his partner entered the prison and held up C.L. Parker, the captain of the guard. They used him as a human shield and marched up to the guard at the front door and shot at him and demanded that they be let out. But they missed the guard, and he had ducked and refused to open the doors. So Warren Snook was alerted, and he was actually at home sick. But, quote, he came immediately to the prison, and the men were put under control easily. The only injury was, to John W. Bunce, a guard who was struck over the head by one of the mutineers as they tackled these two prisoners. And Ward Snook decided the best place for uh, Roy Gardner was in solitary confinement, where he remained for 20 months. I can't even imagine what solitary confinement at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary looked like. I couldn't find any examples of it. But when Roy Gardner got out, he had to be taken to St. Elizabeth Psychiatric Hospital in Washington, D.C., And he served time there, and after he kind of regained some of his composure, they actually sent him to Alcatraz to finish out his sentence. And he actually was released in 1938 and wrote a book about his his time and his life of crime and actually even wrote a movie that came out in 1939. He actually killed himself using cyanide in a hotel room in 1940, kind of a crazy end of his life. Another high-profile figure that Warren Snook had to deal with was Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican political activist and, most importantly, the founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, the UNIAACL, the first black nationalist movement in the United States. Here I've got a little audio clip of Marcus Garvey speaking.
3: Hello, citizens of Africa. I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, and African Communities League of the World. You may ask, what organization is that? It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Improvement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world. The link of the 15 million Negroes of the United States of America with the 20 million Negroes of the West Indies, the 40 million Negroes of South and Central America, with the 280 million Negroes of Africa, for the purpose of bettering our industrial, commercial, educational, social, and political conditions. As you are aware, the world in which we live today is divided into separate race groups and distinct nationalities. Each race and each nationality is endeavoring to work out its own destiny to the exclusion of other races and other nationalities. We hear the cry of England for the Englishman, of France for the Frenchman, of Germany for the German, of Ireland for the Irish, of Palestine for the Jews, of Japan for the Japanese, of China for the Chinese. We of the Universal Negro Food Association are raising the cry of Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. There are four hundred million Africans in the world who have Negro blood coursing through their veins and we believe that the time has come to unite these 400 million people for the one common purpose of bettering their conditions. The great problem of the Negro for the last 500 years has been that of this unity. No one or no organization ever succeeded in uniting the Liberates, but within the last four years, the Universal Liberal Movement Association has worked wonders in bringing together in one fold 4 million organized Negroes who are scattered in all parts of the world, being in the 48th state of the American Union, all the western Islands, and the countries of South and Central America and Africa. These 4 million people are working to convert the rest of the 400 million scattered all over the world, and it is for this purpose that we are asking you to join our ranks and to do the best you can to help us to bring about an emancipated race. If anything praiseworthy is to be done, It must be done through unity. And it is for that reason that the Universal Negro Improvement Association calls upon every Negro in the United States to rally to its standards. We want to unite the Negro race in this country. We want every Negro to work for one common object, that of building a nation of his own on the great continent of Africa. That all Negroes all over the world are working for the establishment of a government in Africa means that it will be realized in another few years. We want the moral and financial support of every Negro to make the dream a possibility. Already, this organization has established itself in Nigeria, West Africa, and is endeavoring to do all possible to develop that Negro country to become a great industrial and commercial commonwealth. Pioneers have been sent by this organization to Nigeria and we are now laying the foundations upon which the 400 million Negroes of the world will build. If you believe that the Negro has a soul, if you believe that the Negro is a man, if you believe that the Negro was a with the expenses commonly given to other men by the Creator, then you must acknowledge that what other men have done, Negroes can do. We want to build up cities, nations, governments, industries of our own in Africa, so that we'll be able to have a chance to rise from the lowest to the highest positions in the African Commonwealth.
2: Marcus Garvey was centered in Harlem, New York, and he was charismatic. He called for Black Americans to be proud of their identity and believe in the separation of white and Black communities, going so far as to cooperate with groups like the KKK, Mm -hmm. who wanted to create racial division in the country to provide financial and cultural independence away from white-dominated society.
0: We studied him sort of in conjunction with overall the colonization movement so you know and i'm sure you talk about it but the idea that there's it seems as if there's an irony of you know a a black citizen working in conjunction with the kkk but it's because sort of both groups believed that blacks and whites should be separated and and so there was a whole back to africa movement that marcus garvey was ahead of basically the african-americans were in the country were split on this some thought that yeah you know they should and some thought we have every right to be here because you literally brought our people here from our homes and so we have every right to be integrated into this society
2: it was extremely controversial for the Mm -hmm. time yeah he had hundreds of thousands of, of black americans joining his movement and You know, he was able to start businesses and a printing press and a newspaper called The Negro World, which espoused his ideas and portrayed stories celebrating black culture. He became president of the Black Star Line in 1919, which was a shipping and travel company to establish this direct link between North America and Africa. And it it was there to transport people and goods between the two continents. And this actually led to his downfall because— The head of the Bureau of Investigation, J. Edgar Hoover, actually hired the first black agent within the Bureau named James Wormley Jones in 1919 to spy on Marcus Garvey. Agent Jones actually made his way deep into the UNIA, achieving a position that required him to register all incoming correspondence to the organization, which was a perfect place to keep tabs on everything the UNIA was doing jones reported directly to j edgar hoover and it's it's crazy there's not a whole lot known about him but uh during the early 1920s there were many newspaper articles about marcus particularly the battles between the head of the naacp led by dr wb du bois who felt that violent separation rhetoric that marcus shared did not help the cause of black americans and marcus began making these bad investments on ships overpaying for his first ship which made three trips before being docked for repairs for good and this poor judgment on these vessels occurred two more times and most of the money you know these investors were giving him basically was being wasted the company failed and marcus actually attempted to use the mail to defraud more investors which was a federal crime and this led to his incarceration in 1923 when he was convicted of mail fraud for selling company stock for a company that was all but bankrupt. So now why would I even talk about this tangent? I kind of worried about like discussing this, you know, for fear of making Snook look like a white savior sort of figure. But mostly it's because Marcus describes Warden Snook's character so well. He wrote of his prison experience at Atlanta, quote, when I was sent to Atlanta, my enemies made sure that that would have been the last of me. From what I could gather, it seemed that they had reached even the deputy warden, Julian A. Schoen, of the federal prison with their influence, with the suggestion of making it hard for me whilst there. The deputy warden of the institution made every effort to carry out the wishes of my enemies. When I was drafted for work, he gave me the hardest and dirtiest task in the prison, thinking that that would have ruffled my spirits to cause further punishment. But I philosophically accepted the duties and executed them to the best of my ability. After being so engaged for a short while, the warden, a high-type man of character and consideration, Mr. J.W. Snook, called me into his office and had me transferred to the best position that a colored man could have in the prison. This I also executed to the best of my ability during the entire time that I remained there. The warden of the prison made everything comfortable for me. I have absolutely no complaints to make during the time I spent at Atlanta under Warden Snook. So I found this just fascinating that Warden Snook was referenced by this huge, important, and controversial historical figure. Again, it's like so many examples that highlights this trait of a man who basically gave everybody a fair shake. And, you know, he was honest, and he's like, okay, if you're, if you're going to work, you got to work hard. And Garvey was eventually released under Snook and deported back to Jamaica in November 1927. Due to his ability to handle such high profile things like this, Warden Snook was actually elected president of the Wardens Association of the United States in 1929. He held the position only a short time because the very person who actually elected him in the first place, Assistant Attorney General Willembrandt, called in authorities to investigate the penitentiary. And Snook was completely opposed to the spy system of sending in agents as prisoners. In a letter to the United States District Judge Benson, W.H. Hugh, Warden Snook wrote, quote, "...at no time was a report submitted to me of any spy or undercover agent while I was at Atlanta." By experience and training, I was qualified for the position I held, and I believe that the institution of a spy system is un-American, destructive of the morale of the prisoners, and an encouragement to the depraved and vicious to besmear and besmirch and lie so as to secure commutation or other personal reward. No court should lend itself to a false commitment, and the Department of Justice, above all, should keep its hands clean. No result justifies dishonorable and vicious means to acquire same. In March 1929, Warden Snook refused to cooperate with authorities, sending in un- undercover agents. Even Senator Bora of Idaho stood up for Snook and said it was wrong to send undercover agents investigating and thus undermining the authority of these federal employees. Willembrandt said that the undercover system wasn't just targeting Snook, but every prison and that he shouldn't be worried if he didn't have anything to hide. So she called for his resignation within 30 days if he wouldn't accept the system, stating that he was a fantastic warden and prison official, but, quote, he does not like to be guided by instructions from the department and will not carry out orders cheerfully and quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just funny to to imagine Snook. (laughs) (laughs) ah man reading this he does not carry out orders cheerfully and quickly so snook becomes the central figure in this anger over this this spy system that's undermining all these wardens
0: which i guess like i can understand because like i mean j edgar hoover was like not a good guy but i and, and i think they do it now where if you put in a, an informant or a spy or whatever, you, like the warden knows. And so I'm wondering if, I mean, maybe he gets into it, but because the whole thing was like, I didn't know that there were spies in here. Like, it's fine if they are, but this, like, because you're not telling me, like, it's, you know, undermining the real justice of the prison. Is that sort of what he's arguing?
2: That's exactly what he's ordering. And so, you know. He resigns. On July 1st, 1929, he says he resigns to preserve his self-respect.
1: With Mabel Walker Willebrandt was the reason I resigned. She was assistant attorney general and in charge of uh, internal revenue and prisons. And she uh, was putting undercover men in the penitentiary under false commitments, which I objected to. And uh, that's the reason that uh, I resigned and I didn't approve of that sort of work. Well, you just told her you didn't, and yeah. you didn't want any part of yeah. it, huh? I told her that, and uh, and she had charge of prisons. But she had done that before Cal Coolidge's term of office expired and wanted to, to fire me, but he, he told her that uh, she couldn't fire me, that I was doing too good a job, and she couldn't fire me as long as he was president. Oh, for heaven's sake. So. after, uh, then after Herbert Hoover... Herbert Hoover was the, uh, elected president, he appointed a man, if I remember correctly, named Mitchell as attorney general. And Mrs. Willibrand asked Mitchell if she could hire and fire wardens. He said, why, why certainly. <laughs> and so then she, she called me up and, and said she wanted me to resign. And, uh, And I said, well, if they're going to be the same practice, well, I'm glad to, because I don't want to be connected with any such administration. (laughs) So uh, I turned (coughs) copies of those false papers over to Senator Borough, and he turned them over to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee of the Senate. And so then uh, that put them up against an investigation, and then she resigned. <laughs> oh, for Pete's <laughs> So, uh,
2: yeah. Kind of cleaned house,
1: yeah.
2: didn't she? So, you know, just like last time, all these tabloids come out saying that Snook allowed women into the prison for conjugal visits and he was lack with all of his, his duties, but not a single charge is brought up against him. It's like this campaign to smear his name, just like we saw when he uh socked the secretary of the former Idaho governor, Moses Alexander, in 1915, you know. Please tell or me 1916. he beat someone up
0: with his bare fist this time, too.
2: <laughs> I think he knew that it was going to turn into that, and it would end up him at the White House doing the same thing, and so instead he decided I'm just going to stand down. I'm going to end this right now. Well, and that's what he did. Was
0: it Coolidge in the White House? He probably deserved it.
2: Ah, uh, it was just about to be Hoover. Yeah. Oh, well, both and... of
0: them deserved it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, boy. So a a report from the Atlanta Department of Justice actually came out in which the Attorney General Mitchell, the boss of Willembrandt, stated, quote, there is nothing in the department files to impeach the integrity of the former warden, whose resignation was asked on the grounds that he lacked administrative ability. So Willembrandt actually went on the offensive and said that Snook didn't resign, but he was fired for his gross mismanagement and that You know, he was trying to institute a campaign against her and the whole Department of Justice. With all this effort during the prohibition as assistant attorney general and helping the election of Hoover, she hoped that, you know, he would elect her to the post of attorney general in 1929, taking over Mitchell's position. But Hoover passed her over, and she felt completely slighted by this. And I think part of it was that, like, no, you know, this is a little bit controversial. Your name in the newspaper you know, leading these spy, these sending these spies and undercover agents into these institutions, I feel like that might not be a good look for me as president. And so he passed her up. And so she actually filed a resignation letter to him. And in it, she wrote, quote, I genuinely regret leaving official connection with the accomplishments of your administration. I have given, however, more than seven years of public service, and I trust my helpfulness to you may not cease when I become just a private citizen. To have had a small part in your election will always be a source of great satisfaction to me and in my own belief, the way I have served my country best the solution of the problem of lawlessness is sure in your hands. I relinquish the prison's work with a sense of achievement in having had the Bureau made a major scientific one and having secured my friend Sanford Bates as its chief. So she resigns and actually starts working for an aviation company and and kind of is successful throughout the rest of her life. Uh, Warren Stuck, he goes on his own way and a whole different direction. They actually moved to New York City, where Snook actually served as a public relations man for an airline called the Avia Transportation Company. Then he became president and general manager of a health resort called the Seabreeze Beach Club at Long Island in New York.
1: Something else I was going to ask you, this uh, Seabreeze Beach Club you were talking about, was that kind of a playboy's outfit, I mean, for rich people, or what was it? Well, no, they were... uh... There was quite a few wealthy people uh, that had no bar, no uh, there was no liquor. It was right on, at, at the Seabreeze Beach Club was right on the uh, edge of the water there, and, and each uh, member of the club, they paid so much to be a member of the club. And then they would uh, come out from New York or around on Long Island, There's, uh, and then they would... Uh, down in the basement there's all full of locker rooms and there's where they would change their clothes and then they'd go out on the beach and sit under the canopies and, and, uh, and swim, go out and swim oh. and then sit there. It was just a bathing resort and then the restaurant. They could have their meals there, uh-huh. but there was no uh, sleeping quarters and there no bars. It was just a very exclusive club. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's still running or not. I haven't heard tell of it for years. You had to take care of the whole thing or manage it. Yes, I was the was, manager and had charge of it. Yeah. You
2: know the job didn't really keep him there long, and
0: it sounds like such a shift in job. Like he spent his entire yeah. career around criminals, and now he's around like these ritzy people who just like come in and eat and hang out on the beach. Like I, I right. don't how. I mean, he wasn't there for long, which I wonder how much of that was his like restlessness of being like, I hate this. <laughs> I just imagine it would be so boring.
2: Yeah, he was there for two years. I feel like that was his long vacation. He was still working, but it was kind of a vacation at this beach resort (laughs) that he's managing, you know. So in 1931, he actually returns to his ranch in Lemai County in Salmon. And there he's elected the director of the Idaho State Cattle Association. And he's, he's admitted to the Hickman Hall of Fame at uh, U of I as an outstanding rancher and livestockman, and he's you know the first member of the exalted ruler of the salmon elks in 1939, and served as the president of the Idaho Elks Association, and he was admitted into the Elks Hall of Fame in 1943. He served as the director of the Idaho State Fair in Boise and was involved in all kinds of horse racing in the 40s. And according to the centennial history of Lemhi County, Idaho, Charlotte and John actually divorced in the 1940s. But Charlotte purchased a ranch adjoining John's where she and her son Quentin operated it. And, you know, it seems like she and John, they were always so close to each other. I, I couldn't find yeah. actually the official divorce papers or why they divorced or mm-hmm. anything else but it, you know I still found notes where they were like going to parties in the 40s together so I'm not sure huh. what happened there I couldn't quite pin that part down Interesting Yeah and you know he just continued to ranch throughout the rest of his life and Charlotte Louise Clayson Snook died on January 24th 1970 at the age of 85 and she was buried at a cemetery in Salmon John died on January 4th, 1975, almost five years to the day after Charlotte. And his obituary highlighted his whole career in Idaho and the legislator wardenship in Idaho and Atlanta and his achievement of being a member of the Elks Lodge since 1900, quote, longer than any other Idaho elk still living. He had been uh, honored, you know, as an outstanding rancher and livestock man and he left behind three sons john c snook fred snook and quinton snook and 13 grandchildren and 14 great-grandchildren he was buried in the salmon cemetery in the centennial history of salmon volume 3 referring to charlotte it states quote she is buried in the salmon city cemetery under a joint headstone with john w snook united then divided in life they are reunited in death Whoa. May God bless them.
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Do you think that I...
0: was their, their kids being like, we sort of know the real story and, you know, whatever. And so they, you know, they would want this.
2: I don't know. I'm not sure. that That's probably it. That, th- neither of them remarried after mm-hmm. their divorce. Hmm. And it seems that, like... They both still lived in the same city. they both still worked in the same rings you know i I could not quite figure that out, and maybe it was just like, "Hey, let's have a vacation from each other i don't I don't know, I really don't know so I kind of want to bring everything back to our first episode with Patrick Murphy, who entered on a life sentence in 1915, and he actually described his first day in the institution in 1915 being served breakfast in his cell as all fish or new inmates were not allowed in the yard. And he wrote, he was next taken to the front office to be Bertillioned and have his mug shot taken. Quote, there I saw for the very first time Warden Stuck, who had been Warden several years and was quite adept at handling the Bertillion system. Warnen himself took my height, weight, age, etc. He was very positive in his pertilian work. He did not try to browbeat me or bulldoze me in any way. He simply asked the necessary questions in tones that a man would speak to a man. And a short time after Murphy is tossed in solitary confinement based on the stool pigeon's tip that all these lifers were going to attempt to escape. And Murphy reasoned with the other prisoners and made this statement about Snook. He said, But if that is what the bird thought, he was wrong in his judgment of the warden. For Snook looked at a man for what he was and not for what he had done. He would not knowingly persecute any man because he was a prisoner. After a month in solitary, the warden had me brought out to the front office. He did not speak for a minute or two, but just sat there and looked at me as if to study me. I thought, if you think I'm going to cringe or beg... For you to let me out of solitary, you were mistaken. I'll stay there till moss grows on my back before I'll ask to get out. Finally, Warden Snook spoke, and his voice was pleasant. Say, Pat, he said, I believe I've made a mistake in your case. After sifting this thing out and the reports that have come to me, I cannot understand how a man with your intelligence will come here in this prison with a life sentence to do and on a 10-day acquaintance start telling every Tom, Dick, and Harry that you're going to Go over the walls. I can't hardly believe it, and I'm going to turn you out into the yard. So after a brief back and forth, Patrick Murphy ended the interaction with, quote, Snook believed in fair play and would fire a guard in a minute if he knew he was trying to bulldoze or persecute a prisoner, for he knew that a guard that would do that was a coward, and Snook hated a coward because he himself feared neither man nor devil. And I think I want to end this episode with that quote. Yeah. I just, Yeah, wow. I
0: think, I mean, excellent work. That was a lot of deep dives. I And I think that, that Snook really introduces a theme that we're going to see, um, I think, really in the rest of the riots that we're going to talk about. Because I think all of the wardens who are involved in these riots, they look at the inmates as human beings and while they may not always agree with like the demands i think they really want to give inmates a chance to to show their humanity and to communicate in human ways not in prisoner ways if that makes sense yeah um so i think you know he is such a good example of um what we're trying to do on this podcast of just seeing inmates not as prisoners but as people and i think that's why he was so successful and this was a an excellent telling of his life i think
2: well thanks guy yeah so much detail and i'm i'm glad that you know he's our first authority figure that that we're talking about and highlighting in the in this podcast because you know he had such a a a wild varied life it made him such an efficient warden and administrator. I hope we, we see more of that in future episodes as we dive into other prison administrators and, and other prisoners that had to deal with these administrators from day to day. So, All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to my crazy deep dive into Warden John W. Snook. Uh, do your own time.
0: Do your own number.
2: And we will see you next Saturday for Sky's Deep Dive into another special prison story. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
0: If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see the mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, which we love to get, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.
1: dad was warden for a long time. I noticed that most of the wardens before him and after him seemed to stay about a year. Why do you think your dad got to stay on so long? Probably because people were scared to move him.